1: Hello and welcome to new books in whatever channel Marshall decides to post this on, probably new books in economics. My name is Sydney, a host on the channel, and today I have Nick Marsh, who is a senior researcher here at PRIO, the Peace Research Institute of Oslo, to talk about his new book Indipur new-ish book, um, Indefensible, Seven Myths That Sustained the Global Arms Trade. And the lovely thing about this book is at the end of it, I will not have to tell you where to go buy it because it is available for free from the people who made it with a lovely website online that I really, I really appreciate Um, so Nick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Um, and so why don't you just sort of start out before we get into the questions by sort of explaining how it is that you, um, came to be on this sort of large team to write this book and sort of where the idea came from, sort of what is the story behind the story, I guess.
2: Yeah. Thanks Sydney. Um, yeah. book is quite unusual for uh, for an academic book at least um uh, as there was about 14 of us wrote it so it was kind of a collective endeavor um with paul holden uh sort of yeah doing more more of the work than the, the rest of us in terms of compiling it all um and it was came from a project uh that was started up by the world peace foundation uh, which is run by Alex de Waal. Uh, he's a sort of uh, prominent scholar on East African security affairs. Um, and he, he runs the World Peace Foundation, which is based in uh, Tufts uh, University um, in Boston. Um, so he got together this group of people um, uh, and we had several, uh, you know, uh, Multi-day uh, discussions um, in Massachusetts, also in London, um, sort of talking about uh, problems associated with the, the arms trade, um, and uh, uh, this book uh, was sort of a, pro- uh, a product of that. And you know, the the World Peace Foundation has has been involved in several uh, several things um, since then. Um, most of which have been produced by uh, Sam Perlow-Freeman. Uh, they've just produced a, a sort of data uh, visualization um, on, you know, who is armed
1: in conflict. Um, so. um, awesome. And as I was reading this book, one thing that really sort of struck home with me is the, it really is organized with seven different myths. It sort of starts with myth one and goes through yep. sort of myth seven. Miss um, Six really struck with me, um, because at some point last year, someone who I'm very close to, who I know for a fact does not actually secretly work for the CIA, because I've seen her do her work, um, and it's very much not CIA work, um, and does nothing related to events at all, uh, told me that she had been offered top secret clearance, um, to which it began to dawn on me just how many people in the United States, I'm American for those of you listening, Um, must have top secret clearance and at what point does top secret clearance not become top secret or become sort of counterproductive Um, and this is sort of one of the major myths in the book is that sort of blanket security does not actually improve national security so would you be willing to sort of elaborate on this because it turns out that it was way more true than I thought
2: yes I mean, I think the the secrecy uh, surrounding the arms trade um, and defence procurement in general um, sort of lies uh, at the at the heart of a lot of the problems uh, uh, we can talk about um, later. Um, it is sometimes quite astounding uh, the level of secrecy. Um, uh, uh, for, for example, uh, last year I spent far more time than I should have done, uh, trying to work out how many soldiers there are in the Malian uh, National Army. Uh, This was a problem because the number of soldiers is a state secret. Um, there are various estimates, which diverge by a lot. Um, so basically, you know, I'm writing an article on the Malian armed forces. I don't actually know the basic information of how, you know, there's no official information on, on how many soldiers there are actually in the army. Um, uh. And we find things like that all, all over the world. Um, uh, it, again, it's, it's surprisingly uh, difficult to actually find out uh, what a country's defense budget is, um, uh, especially in sort of semi-democratic or authoritarian regimes, the, the defense budget itself may be a state secret. So you don't actually know how much they're spending. Um, it may be, uh, you know, a criminal offense to actually talk about the weapons that are being procured. Um, and so all this means that you can have enormous amounts of corruption, um, you know maladministration, bad decisions being made, uh, and there's no scrutiny because there's no information, um, no one's allowed to talk about it. Um, even in, uh, sort of democratic countries where you'd expect there to be more oversight, it it again, can be extremely difficult to find out, okay, what exactly is being bought for how much money, uh, and that's because oftentimes the contracts themselves are extremely complicated. Uh, You're not just buying um, 20 jet fighters, you're buying maintenance, uh, training, spare parts, weapons, you know, trying to actually work out, okay, how much does a jet fighter cost is extremely difficult. Um, uh, I've got colleagues over in the Stockholm Peace Research Institute, um, uh, again whos have to spend a huge amount of time just getting basic estimates uh, on how much these things cost when they're producing their statistics
1: awesome um and so while we're 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 looking at sort of how secrecy drives costs um myth one and I actually think sort of one that i If our audience walks away with nothing else they might want to walk away with this one is that the relationship between higher defense spending and more security is extraordinarily sort of precarious if it exists at all um it may actually be negative um so could you just sort of like walk us through a how this could be? Because, I mean, you would think that sort of if we spend more money on health, we expect more health. Like, if we're spending more money on defense, we would expect more security. Could you walk us through how that it can come to be that that is not the case?
2: Uh, well, I mean, as you're an American, the health example doesn't really uh, stand up because, uh, I mean, the U.S. spends enormous amounts of money on health and doesn't uh, get much out of that. But, um, uh, but anyway, back, uh, back to defense. No, I mean, Ultimately, the 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 best way to have security, um, uh, the best way to not be attacked by our neighbour, is to have peaceful relations with your neighbours. Um, so, uh, you know that needs to be, uh, you know, sort of first uh, and foremost. Um, certainly, uh, you cannot guarantee to have peaceful re- relations with your neighbours. So, uh, you know, a certain amount of defence spending, uh, I would. Certainly agrees necessary. Um, If you're in Ukraine at the moment, I'm sure they're quite glad that they've had defence spending in in the past. Um, uh, But then certainly there there doesn't appear to be a direct relationship between how secure uh, a state is and how much money it is spending. Um, uh, If we're looking at Uh, You know, states which traditionally have very high levels of defense expenditure, they tend to be authoritarian regimes, um, which are also prone to um, getting involved in wars. Um, And here we, uh, for the international relations um, uh, specialists in the audience, you you get problems with what's known as the security dilemma. uh, Which basically means if one country uh, invests a large amount of money in a new weapon system, uh, that may then cause uh, its neighbours uh, to feel uh, suspicious, um, to feel threatened. Uh, their response then may be to invest, you know, more money in their own weapons. Um, so, uh, again, I, you know, I'm not arguing that the world uh, would be better off if no one ever spent anything on weapons. Um, no. Can we stop that, because that would be... (laughs) Can we edit that out? That was a stupid comment. Um, uh, All right. (laughs) Uh, uh, All right, Uh, I'll start again. Um, I'm not uh, not suggesting that um, individual countries shouldn't have a defence budget. Um, Just that uh, an unlimited defence budget doesn't uh, buy a country unlimited amounts of security. The world would, of course, be a wonderful place if nobody
1: had any weapons. No, no. um, So I assume we can edit. No, 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 no. Uh, We can edit this out. But I actually think that sort of that mistake is one that, like, sort of we often make is that sort of, actually, if we didn't have weapons, we would actually live in a better world.
2: Uh, Well, you can uh, (laughs) keep it in as well. um, Yeah, yeah, no, no. no. But um, you decide. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um,
1: Getting getting back on on sort of on track um so you've laid out sort of compelling reasons that or compelling evidence that and there's much more in the book that more defense spending does not lead to more security could you talk through maybe briefly how it can come to be that they that they become so disconnected um, sort of you mentioned issues of corruption um, you even mentioned Ukraine I don't know if you remember but there is a good story in the book about sort of how Ukraine in the 1990s basically sold all of its weapons on the black market um, like they, some of the things that are in this book are extremely scandalous and well documented um, but yeah. could yeah just like give us a little bit more about like sort of how it can be that they become so disconnected um.
2: yeah certainly uh, I mean if, if we come back to the secrecy um, uh, point I made, made earlier, if you have little or no um, effective scrutiny over budgets um, from national parliaments, uh, you know from the media, um, civil society, etc., it then becomes incredibly easy uh, for people to siphon off enormous amounts of money. Um, uh, for, um, you know, in corrupt practices. Um, so you can then see, uh, defense procurement and especially the arms trade being a means by which, uh, money is siphoned, uh, around the world. Um, you, you look at, uh, for, you know, it's mentioned in the book, um, uh, enormous levels of corruption, for example, associated with sales to Saudi Arabia. Um, you know, uh. For example, uh, you may sell uh, arms worth a billion dollars. Uh, then, okay, let's add thirty percent to the contract, and that's three hundred million dollars worth of bribes being paid. Um, uh, so, when you when you have corruption involved you then have a distortion of what would be a normal procurement process. You're not buying the most effective uh, equipment for the most competitive price. You're buying what will get you the best bribes. Um, uh, So then you can end up uh, with equipment that is utterly useless. Um, You don't need uh, your, your, you know, your personnel don't know how to operate it. Um, And uh, I I would, I mean, if we're talking about Ukraine, I'd actually argue in in the current conflict, um, it it appears, I mean, I'm just speculating, but it it appears that a lot of the problems uh, that the Russian armed forces are facing uh, is due to them having uh, spent enormous amounts of money on, uh, you know, shiny high tech uh, equipment um and very little on maintenance training um working out how to use it um so you then have you know images of ukrainian farmers towing away air defense systems worth tens of millions of dollars each Um, uh, and this, you know, this would be an example of how, you know, the procurement process got distorted by, you know, financial incentives, um, in, you know, in country, you know, obviously some countries are more, uh, affected by corruption and others though, you know, certainly in, in Western Europe, there've been lots of high profile cases of blatant corruption, including, uh, including in Norway, um, uh, you, you still have issues of the extent to which you know, the bureaucracies uh, and the political system is being captured by interest. Um, you know, does the bureaucracy order equipment just so that it can justify its existence? Um, do you have politicians uh, ordering equipment so they can stand up in front of a factory back home and uh, have lots of people applauding them? Um, again, are you actually buying what the armed forces need or are you buying votes? If you're buying votes, it's not very good for, for the, you know, the, the effectiveness of your armed forces.
1: Yeah. So let's let's talk a little bit about this sort of like vote buying process. This is not in the book, but I did look into this sort of as I was reading the book and being interested is that every year this is it's a small scandal in the United States. Every year the president goes and sends it's always at him his budget to Congress. And then every year, Congress approves more money than he asked for for the defense spending, which is sort of mind-blowing that it is the only thing ever that has come in with more money than was asked for and a refusal to let people make cuts they would like. Even sort of the bureaucrats who are sort of the officers in charge would like to make. Um, And the reason it comes back is that we're using... um, basically I had internalized this myth that basically the United States uses its military spending as our only remaining force or sort of source of industrial policy and can you explain sort of why a this isn't true and b it's a terrible idea if it was true
2: um yeah uh well I mean it's it's definitely true that people are using defense spending as a way to uh spend money uh in places uh that may not otherwise get it and yeah as we we're saying that that uh, there's political reasons for that pork-barrel politics, uh, and certainly the, 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 there's been many cases where the Pentagon, the, the U.S. Department of Defense, didn't actually want the equipment that it's being uh, given by by Congress. Um, uh, I mean, the the reason why that's a terrible idea. Um, uh, let's say that you you get appointed as an advisor to the president of the United States, um, and he says, uh, "Okay, Sydney, here's a, you know, we've got a hundred billion dollar budget to um, uh, you know develop new new science technology, you know, build up U.S. industry. You're not going to spend that budget on buying defense systems." Uh, that would be an extremely inefficient use of that money. Um, uh, in particular defense systems often aren't much use for anything else. Uh, it's highly specialized technology. Um, for example, you you know, enormous amounts of money is being spent on making submarines very, very quiet. So they can't be detected, but there, there probably are some civilian uses for that somewhere if you look really hard, but it's again if you uh, it, it's not a priority if you're if you're interested in you know stimulating the U.S. economy creating jobs there are much better ways of doing it
1: yes um there are and given that we're both academics we would like to point out that most of what the military gets credit for inventing is actually things that come out of civilian inventions mostly from people who are in their you know Labs at MIT doing things that no one knew about.
2: Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, um, you know,
1: if if your aim is
2: to improve, uh, you know, national science and technology, just spend the money directly on the scientists. Uh, you don't need to um, uh, siphon it via defense companies, um, which you know remove a mar- large amount of the budget via profits and payroll and overheads, etc.
1: All right, so this brings me to sort of, you've mentioned corruption several times because it really is sort of at the heart of the arms trade, right? There just There is no global arms trade without corruption. Um, but I, I think it's easy to, to sort of either not understand how large the corruption going on is, or to imagine that it sort of happens somewhere else, um, particularly if you live in sort of a country that you've imagined to be a developed in sort of like industrial country, whether that's true or not. Um, and I think the really thing, one of the things that hit home with me was when sort of you talked a bit about the offset system. Yeah. Would you just sort of like walk our audience through sort of A, what the system is and B, give them an idea because, you know, corruption happens everywhere. It's sort of, I think people think of it as sort of an unfortunate thing that just hasn't been fixed. But in fact, sort of corruption is the arms trade in some sense. Like there, there, there are large amounts of things that are worth potentially trillions of dollars that have no purpose except for corruption in this particular business.
2: Yeah I mean I mean, certainly well the offsets work um, uh, let's say uh, a country spends a billion dollars on you know buying uh, tanks uh, for example it then um, uh, you know, th- this, this may not look so good um, so uh, for, for its national taxpayers. So it then uh, comes up with a thing known as offsets, which is says, okay, a certain amount of that contract um, will be spent uh, on, you know, our, our national economy. What often happens is you, you have say companies, um, uh, would be set up by the arms company, uh, to, uh, you know, to produce things. Um, and so the, you know, it's, it's a way of seeming as if, uh, the money's staying within the national economy rather than going straight back out again. Um, but what happens is very frequently, those offsets don't exist, um, or they, even if they do exist, um, they produce far less, uh, economic gain than is claimed. Um, and again, it's a way of siphoning huge amounts of money around um, often to the you know friends and relatives uh, of the president of the company uh, of the country um, uh, as a way uh, of uh, trying to justify what's happening I mean this there's examples in the book from South Africa for example so
1: no 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 like I, I laughed at the South Africa example and then wanted to cry um essentially what happened is that I believe it might have been a uh, Scandinavian, it might have been a Swedish, a Swedish, yes. Swedish company that um, was supposed to build, uh, what do you call them? They were going to build a few hot tubs in sort of like, I don't know, the 10th biggest city in South Africa. It was not a terribly large city. Um, and then put up a few signs about them. And then they somehow managed to get large amounts of credit for every person from anywhere in Scandinavia that went to South Africa, including to see the World Cup for like three years. It, 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 these things sort of like when they come out are, are so blatantly shameless that they're laughable. Um, but they really sort of are costly. Um, but let's let's pivot to to sort of another major in, or issue with the arms trade, um, and that is that these are in fact arms, right? You can either you can say that this is bad industrial policy because the uh, in the best case the arms are useless, but in the worst case, sort of often you're just selling arms to people who are known to be are at high risk of committing human rights abuses, or um, they could through. Even if they were responsible users, these arms could somehow come to be in the hands of, of people who are are not, um, yeah. basically who are who are who should not have arms. Yeah. Um, and could you just talk about sort of how once you sort of sell these arms, you either have no control over them, or there has been no one yet who's demonstrated you could have control over where they go.
2: Yeah, certainly. I, I mean, it's extremely difficult uh, to. To control what the recipient of a weapon system will do with it once they've got that weapon, um, you—the th- first problem is um, the the are the countries that are exporting arms will, you know. Uh, c- certainly those in Europe North America will say okay we've we've all got uh, a very strict rigorous process by which we assess the recipients uh, and we're not going to export to ones who you know who are going to use the commit uh, the equipment to violate human rights um, however you you know a weapon system may last for 30 40 years um, it, it's pretty much impossible to predict what will be done with it um, uh, Saudi Arabia is, is a very good example I mean back in the, back in the 1980s 1990s um, you know very large amount of equipment sold there uh, from Europe uh, in the United States and at the time you know there was huge amounts of corruption but people kind of said well it's not actually doing anything there Um, uh, and now of course we've got an absolutely uh, brutal uh, Saudi Arabian involvement in the war in Yemen uh, with all this equipment that they were sold in previous decades Um, they they are um, still dependent upon supplies of ammunition, supplies of spare parts etc but there's been pretty much no uh, motivation to actually cut off those supplies to stop them committing human rights violations you know once they um so the, you know, the commitment there from the exporters uh doesn't really seem to be very strong um and second uh, uh the party that receives the arms can you know export it on to to someone else um uh you know weapons that uh, you know, we're supposedly sent to a country not involved in war, you know, all the time, uh, end up in war zones. Um, people start, uh, trying to work out how it got there. Um, again, it's the exporting, uh, countries, uh, can claim that, okay, we're monitoring this, uh, we may even send people to have inspections, but even then if, uh, it, when equipment is discovered um it, where it sh- wasn't supposed to be very little happens um, you know there there may be a you know minor slap on the wrist but it, it's not as if um you know countries are blacklisted for long periods of time and not allowed to export uh, import weapons
1: and my understanding is that there is supposed to be a treaty. On the uh, that's preventing at least some of this from going on but let's just say the book is rather critical of the idea that this treaty does anything um could you sort of walk us through what the idea of the treaty is and sort of what the reality of what it does is
2: yeah I mean uh, it's it's the arms trade treaty um, which was negotiated uh, you know by, um, in large UN conference um, uh, that was in 2013 um, uh, so, uh, I mean, I, uh, the, with the arms trade treaty, I mean, it, it's very much a case of the glass being half full or, or half empty. Um, uh, on the one side before that, there were basically no global level rules at all, uh, about the arms trade. Um, so, uh, it, it's, uh. It, in terms of uh, sort of making human progress, it's it's good that we went from a situation of zero um, global rules to having a treaty um, with you know with a majority of uh, states in the world signed up to it. Um, having said that, uh, it establishes a set of rules, but it's the national governments are are entirely responsible for implementing them. Um, uh, there's there's no way within the treaty. Um, uh, for a, you know, for a government to suffer ne- negative consequences for uh, you know deliberately sending arms to parties who use them to commit human rights free- human rights violations, for example, um, the one uh, kind of enforcement mechanism is um, an expectation that each uh, state party will publish uh, an annual report on its imports and exports. Um, However, the the treaty doesn't specify exactly what information they should provide. Um, And also states are allowed to keep their reports confidential. Um, So they don't even have to to publish them. Uh, And what we've seen um, over the years is a growing number uh, of states uh, produce confidential reports that aren't made public um, and a growing number of states have just stopped reporting or altogether um, so the yeah the the level of transparency um associated with the arms trade treaty you know has declined um, ever since it came into effect
1: i see um yeah there's one more myth um or discur- discourse that the sort of arms industry likes to use that is not in the book um and but i'd like to ask you about and that is sort of the narrative that if we don't do this whatever this is it does not just exist in the arms trade someone else will um i imagine sort of in america it's usually china but i imagine in beijing there is somebody out there who's like you know if we don't do this the americans will <laughs> sort of like i i again i for any of if we have sort of like chinese listeners out there i actually don't know if this is a discursive element in china but i, I am perfectly willing to imagine that sort of um justifying bad things by saying that someone else will do them if we don't is 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 a pretty common and sort of universal line of argument um would you like to say a few words about this type of line of argument
2: i heard it several times from my children uh I, I, i'm not really convinced when they say it um no i uh, i uh, uh, it, th- there's two two ways of approaching that. I mean, first is the the use of the weapons in armed conflict. Um, it isn't actually the case that every single weapon is very easily interchangeable with another one. Um, you, if uh, if a country that has been buying from the US or or, or NATO members, um, it will actually find it difficult to switch to Chinese equipment. Um, It's not that interoperable. They'll need to get new spare parts. They will need to get new training to work out how to do it. Um, Also, there's the issue of whether the um, equipment from another country can actually do the same things. You have high technology exports, say from the US, that you, you know, you need to go to the US or another NATO member to actually get access to that kind of technology. So, it, it it's not the case that you can, you know, a country can in, you know, very easily and very quickly just find a new supplier um, without well without spending an enormous amount of money, as I said, on uh, you know training everybody. Um, secondly, um, you know, with things like corruption. Um, uh, I think an, uh, an important consideration is not just what corruption is doing to, uh, you know, the, the people importing um, weapons, um, but what you know what's that corruption doing to the exporting country as well. Um, it's not really a good idea if your, uh, you know, economic policy is based upon bribing other people. You're then not actually uh, focusing on producing a, you know, a high quality product at a, you know, competitive price. Um, if you're, if you are relying on bribing other people, they they may decide, you know, if they, uh, you know, if they want to get bribed by someone else, then you don't have a market um, for your products. So. Uh, you know, I suggest in the long run um, uh, focusing on quality and price, uh, as every other uh, industrial sector does, is is probably a more um, more secure way to protect your industry.
1: All right, thank you for that. Um, so, as we sort of have gone through most of the seven myths, we come to the last one, which is that. Um, Can you talk about potential solutions because I think actually miss seven in the book is that this really is sort of like an Inevitable way of the world and there's really nothing you can do about it Right, they have lobbyists and sort of in some sense you could say we don't which isn't exactly true But um, I'm interested. Could you sort of like talk about how this this sort of could change? um, And that sort of this is not actually inevitable
2: Yeah uh, Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think there's two uh, two ways we, we can try to change things, again, uh, you know, it's something which would take quite a long time, certainly, um, but yeah, viewing, viewing it as inevitable uh, is certainly too strong. I mean, firstly, to go back to the secrecy, there doesn't need to be the level of secrecy. Uh, I mean, certainly the exact specifications of a new weapon system, okay, you, you want to keep that secret, but... Um, that there has been a process by which some countries have become a lot more transparent, um, especially about how much money they're spending, what their procurement processes are. You know, how are you actually making this decision uh, to buy a weapon system rather than having the whole process being secret? Uh, you know, the they they've been fine. This hasn't been a problem. Um, their national security hasn't suffered. Um, so, firstly, um, you know, if people want to change this, they can try to get. Uh, get more openness um, you know demand to know why their governments keep keeping certain information secret if there isn't an obvious national security rationale for it. Um, second is uh, I would say try to uh, erode erode what you could call the national security exception. In politics, the, you know, if if people say, "Well, this is a national security issue," in some contexts, uh, that then tends to shut down the debate. People feel as if they're being uh, unpatri- unpatriotic, etc., for asking questions about, you know. Is buying this weapon system a good idea or not? Um, so, you know, treat defence procurement like any other part of government. Uh, I would say to you know to the greatest extent possible, and that would be the best way to you know to try to change things in the long run. Uh, of course, I'm not uh, I'm not uh, expecting that to happen overnight, but certainly you know you've got various countries um, who, who have done that, and as I said, it, it hasn't been a huge problem for them.
1: All right, awesome. So as we sort of get towards the end of our interview, can you tell me something that you're reading now? Or could you give our audience a book recommendation?
2: Um, Yeah, I was trying to think about that um, because uh, I'm not actually reading anything on the arms trade. Um, uh, So uh, I am, though, spending a large amount of time uh, being very concerned about the situation in Ukraine. Um, So I can recommend two works of fiction. on that, um, uh, first is classic book *Catch-22* um, by Joseph Heller, um, which basically is all about the utter um, irrationality of war. Uh, uh, and certainly, if we're looking at um, why have the Russians attacked Ukraine. Uh, it's, uh, I find it inexplicable. Um, you can perhaps learn something about how the whole enterprise is utterly irrational, uh, to have tens of thousands, uh, of young men trying to kill each other, um, uh, to appease the vanity of a, a president somewhere, uh, it, you know, is it, ultimately an utterly irrational, um, project, even, even the, even though, of course, if you're a Ukrainian, it's, uh, entirely rational to, to defend your, to defend your country. Um, uh, and the second, uh, work of fiction again, classic one, um, Ernest Hemingway, um, uh, for who the, for whom the bell tolls, um, uh, which, uh, shall I put it, it's, it's not necessarily that good a book in terms of. How people usually think of novels, the you know the characterization isn't that good, um, but as a description of um, uh, uh, people fighting, um, uh, I would say you know as, as a book somebody could read uh, relatively quickly, well written, um, you know it it it's it's all it's it, it set in the Spanish Civil War in the thirties, but um, it, it's a very good description of you know how uh, how soldiers actually fight.
1: Awesome, so for those of you out there, check that out um and finally what are you working on now um i would say next but this book came out and i believe 2018 so i assume you've been doing something in between otherwise someone at prio would probably come and ask you why you've been sleeping in the office for three years
2: uh, not, well yeah i've been sleeping at home for three years because that's where we've been mostly working during the pandemic um uh yeah no working on several things um in particular um big project called disarm which is on post-conflict disarmament um uh which is all about the uh the uh the difficulties and various ways in which people attempt to persuade uh former combatants etc to, to give up their arms and how how you can negotiate um uh for you know for people to do that during a peace process um uh another project i'm working on is looking at um sort of norms associated with artificial intelligence um and uh you know particularly comparing sort of chinese norms uh, and um, sort of european norms there
1: awesome thank you so much for being here um this was uh, Nick March, and the book is Indefensible, Seven Myths That Sustain the Global Arms Trade. If you go to projectindefensible.org or you just Google Project Indefensible and click on it, um, you can read the book online. It lo- it actually is very helpful. It says that it takes about four and a half hours to read. I can tell you that's about right. Um, it's really interesting. You will laugh. You'll be angry. You'll probably yell at your dog or cat if you have one. Um, and you'll probably learn something. So I, I highly recommend it. Um, thanks for being on the MBN.